when building out that team, look for diversity. You want people on that team who are different than you. You want them to understand other areas of the business where you may be weak or have skills where you're weak in to help make the team overall whole and actually more than whole, performing at an excellent level. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Brian Willett, CISO at Lexmark. During his 25-year tenure, Brian has risen from entry-level coder to high-level security leader. But it wasn't a straight path to cybersecurity. Today, he emphasizes the importance of collaboration and concise communication and explains how gathering skills beyond security set him up for success as CISO. Security is a team effort, and to the CISO, that means building a program with diverse backgrounds and skill sets. So how can a CISO weigh risk while maintaining alignment with the end user? As a manager, how should you train your successor? And what methods can you use to communicate technical concepts so simply that even your parents would understand? Brian, thank you so much for joining us on the show. If you would, for the uninitiated, tell us, who are you? So, Brian Willett. I am the Chief Information Security Officer at Lexmark. I have been at Lexmark for quite a long time, 25 years, which you don't see much anymore. Uh, but there's good reasons for that. We can talk about that more later. But currently responsible for IT security, which includes all security governance, security architecture, security operations. But I end up sticking my nose in a lot of areas of the business when it comes to the risk to the business and trying to minimize that risk. In our earlier chat, we had a great conversation about how, and I, I think it's a, a bit of a unique one, at least in terms of the scope of this show, where not only your background, but also the scope of your duties might be a bit unique, both from a traditional security sense, but also from a manufacturing standpoint, but even above and beyond that, beyond the, the security of your own products detail, but then <laughs> the added opportunity of supply chain security. So it could be threefold what some CISOs have without sort of blowing smoke. I think that became very clear in our in our introduction. Yeah, and a lot of that evolved out of a lot of it out of my background before even getting into my role where I had responsibility for product security for quite some time because I was in R&D for 18 years of my career. And starting as a low-level firmware developer, coming up through the ranks of management, and eventually, you know, owning the security roadmap for all products as well as the security development lifecycle. So that kind of set the tone when I came into the CISO role. And I'm notorious for kind of looking at overall business and looking at what risks are throughout the business and kind of being that early canary in the mind to say, hey, I see a trend in industry coming right, of area of concern. And in this case, supply chain security was really starting to become an area of focus. 
And when you look across the business, right, you know where each of the business areas are good. R&D is great at building widgets. They're excellent at it. Supply chain is great at manufacturing those widgets. You know, IT security is good at risk thinking and helping to uh, minimize the risk. And so as we saw that drumbeat going, it became an opportunity to really get a collaboration going between the R&D group, the supply chain group, and the IT group to develop a program around supply chain security. And for me, it's always great when I get to work across the business areas. You get excellent perspective from each of the teams. You learn more, right? You learn more about the business and how they operate. And then on top of that, if you haven't been to a manufacturing facility, it's quite an experience, right? Just to see how they operate and how they hum. It's not the world that many of us live in every day. That's no joke. If you haven't sort of been on the shop floor and look at how is this stuff actually being made and what does testing look like, both from the hardware perspective, but then also the the evaluation of the code and the firmware and the chipset and all the rest, which we'll get into, it can get, again, well beyond what many have had the opportunity to work on. Before we jump into that, though, and you hinted at some of this, 18 years in R&D, how'd you get your start so you didn't start off in the role you're in now? You know, going back to your EE degree, talk about the road you traveled there and kind of getting started into what you've become today, if you would. Yeah, so I started in uh, in firmware development. So I knew coming out of out of school in electrical engineering, I was definitely more attracted to low-level coding at the time. So I started off doing very low-level code for business inkjet printers at the time. And I could describe what it is, but it's basically taking rasterized image data and turning it into columns so that an inkjet printer could print collimated data across a page. And it was pretty neat. I mean, it, it was very low-level bit-banging kind of stuff. It's it's the kind of thing where you stick your headphones on, you listen to some good music, and you just start cranking out code, which, you know, can be fun. But there came a point in my uh, in my career after going through, I don't know, a few product cycles, working in different areas of the code, which I was learning lots. I What I loved about it is I was surrounded by amazing engineers who challenged me all the time. And I was constantly learning new capabilities. This, I, I remember probably the second product I worked on is when we started to adopt Linux for the firmware operating system. And so going from a proprietary operating system to Linux, that I mean, the learning curve was amazing. So that was fabulous. But I, I came to a point where I kind of said, I can't sit in this dark room anymore. I've got to get out. I've got to talk to people. I've got to understand more what's going on around the business. I want to understand how we go from an idea to creating a product to, you know, going through the full development cycle of the product, how we market the product, et cetera. And then on top of that, you know, I was looking at my own career and where did I want to get my career? You could call it intimidation or maybe it's just genius. I don't know. But I realized that the engineers I was surrounded by, they were they were top notch. And I kind of viewed that they might have had a leg up on me when it came to technical career succession. So that's why I started thinking about that the management track, right? And, and at Lexmark, it's, it is very segmented. 
you either kind of head down a technical path or you head down a management track, kind of like a lot of your other large technical corporations. To head down that path at the time, the career path was you go into project management. And then if you're successful in that role and you want to go into management, that's where you would get into your first line type management role. So I did project management for several years, for about four years, and it was it was good. It, it's one of those roles, you know, you think back to points in your career, you know, you can go back to high school. I think of my junior year in high school, man, that was, that was a tough year in, in school. I go back to freshman year in college when you're going through engineering physics and some of the electromagnetic fields and waves, some of the classes that really tested you that taught you how to buckle down and really work hard. Project management was that as well. You were on a tough timeline that you had to hit, and you were trying to drive a huge ship in that direction and trying to get to port on schedule. So being in the PM role, it was the tight deadline. It was the pressure from that. It wasn't necessarily becoming a project or a product manager. It wasn't the tasks and the skill set and the, you know, schedule-based planning and the dependencies of tasks, it was that the process of creating all of that, just dealing with constraints and the pressure to deliver on a day was more so for a release date. Was like, am I accurate there? Yeah, you're accurate. It's you learning how to deal with that stress, that problem set, and learning how to manage through that. That was the important part of, of the lesson. And that really is what kind of, for me, set me up for what was to come in the management side. Does being, you know, you mentioned intimidation earlier, which I, I kind of love that, is the, the realization that you may not be the best or in the top and your own, your, your own perspective, that you're not in the top tier of programmers of whatever, that intimidation, do you think that made you maybe a better project manager where you had knowledge, you had done the tasks, many of them, it sounds like, but you weren't hung up on trying to or believing that you were the best at that. In fact, the intimidation may have opened you up to take the other route. Do you find that that was probably a positive thing going in and doing PM work? As strange as that question is. There's a reason for it. I'm going to ask to follow on, but do, have you ever thought about the, the relationship between, hey, I'm going to try to be a great PM. It's my stepping stone to a leadership and then executive leadership. But if I didn't feel intimidated, maybe I would have been a different type of PM or not at all. Have you re reflected on that? I have. And I view whether you call it intimidation or not sure you're doing the job to a certain level. I have leveraged that throughout every role in my career. That's what motivates me to work hard and continuing on my own self-improvement, which then results in, you know, ho hopefully improving the broader team around me such that we can be the best that we can all be. I think, though, that, you know, if I look across some of what I have done in my past, I was, I was an above average administrator, but I by far, I was not one of our best. So in terms of being an engineer or doing development support, I was approaching good. I was not great for a lot of reasons. 
my youth at that age, at that period of time, has something to do with this formula as well. But then going in, and I, I worked in a PMO for three years after doing what I'd consider fairly technical work, building systems and supporting them, and then went in and I knew I really had a passion for information security. So I went in to go be an intrusion analyst. But had I not done some of these other things, I wouldn't have been as good at sort of the third that I mentioned, which is going in and being an intrusion analyst. I was never amazing at any of those things. So I wasn't tied to being that. It wasn't my identity. The fact that I was maybe mediocre or maybe a little better than that, I think, made me more able to give up the prior moniker to go do the other thing, which ultimately led me into architecture and executive leadership. So it's the reason why I brought that up for the listener that may be tying their identity too close to their current task and not focusing on, okay, maybe there's something else I should be doing. And where does intimidation or maybe even imposter syndrome for some fall into this? Or does it, you know, according to Brian? Yeah, so I agree with you in, in a sense. I think an individual has to think about what is their career goal? So I know people who are the master of a given technical topic. They know it inside and out. They can go about as deep as you want. They are industry leading in, in a certain space. But you ask them to go outside of that and, you know, that's where it quickly falls off. I find in security, especially what I look for in my organization, is I want people with broad knowledge. I want them to be a jack of all trades. And maybe not the master in any. Now, I have a few people I need them to be the master in it, but many of them, I just need them to understand lots of areas of the business. I need them to be good at process. I need them to understand policy and what the impact of policy is on the broader business. I need some of them to be more technically deep to be able to understand whether it's the network or the endpoints or identities, right? Understand how all of those work together but also recognize what does it mean to the end user? How's it going to impact them? And kind of to your point, that diverse set of knowledge that you could have can set you up for a lot of success, whether it's in security or whether it's in an executive leadership position. I mean, you look at most of your executive leaders, they understand overall how a business operates, not just you know whether it's specifically finance or specifically marketing or sales or supply chain or R&D, they're broad. And, you know, I can't underemphasize enough the importance of someone thinking about getting that diverse set of experiences in their own life in order to set them up for where they may want to end up. Even if that one, several, one, multiple of those rotations, they might be uncomfortable, but that's good. They got to look at it as being good. It is. I think we in security Many that I know are so passionate about the mission of it that they can become a little bit blinded by it, uh, especially as it relates to the development of their own career and maybe the efficiencies that they may have or room for improvement in order to sort of move up. I think beyond that, for current CISOs, and I like your, your perspective on this, there becomes a larger question of what do I do once I am a CISO? What do I become after 
being the person in charge of security. What does that career arc look like? And I think the right answer is the answer shouldn't be retirement and then I'm done and maybe do like what I pressure for and with anyone I I meet with that that I want their opinion, at least that to ask them, what is that? And so I'll ask it to you now. Obviously, you're keen on your mission and you're not going anyplace. And that's, but thematically, have you and your peers and the circles in which you run, have you talked about that? What should a CISO become? What is the further development once you're in it? Is it teaching? Is it advisory? Is it training your successor? Is it becoming something that doesn't have the CISO moniker? All the above. What's your take on high level take on that? You know, that's an excellent question. And man, when I figure that out, it's going to be great. <laughs> now, we do talk about that all the time. I guess a couple things. One, I think anybody who is going to be a good manager, they are always in the mode of preparing their successor. You always want to be ready for that. I, You know, you hate to think of it, but if you got hit by a bus, who's going to keep things rolling? And then secondly, if you're not doing that, chances are you're not going to keep your employees anyway, because they also want to move up in their career. And if they don't see the opportunity, they're going to leave. So for me, that's always just been part of uh, being a manager. I want to make sure that I'm preparing them for that next role. I want to make sure I'm in tune with what they want their next role to be and, and getting them ready for it. Now, specific to your question of the CISO, excellent question. You know, there's many different routes that one could go. It could be, you know, someone like myself at a two and a half billion dollar company, maybe that's the next step is they move to a larger company, right? Because a larger company has different challenges. Maybe they move to a different industry because they have very different challenges, different threat surfaces. Maybe they go on, on the vendor side. A CISO, if they're successful, they're a hell of a salesperson. And as a salesperson, they might have great opportunities moving into the vendor side and helping sell the best products out there as opposed to just buying the best products. I do think it's important, though, whether it's a career move or you're staying in the role, I think giving back to the skill, this segment of of the business, I think it's important to start sharing that because pretty much all of us, I think, most of us who are CISOs, we've probably been in the business, been in in the industry for quite some time. Your probably shortest tenure may be maybe 15 years, but likely more for a lot. When you reach that role, you know, you kind of have to maybe switch what motivates you. And what motivates you may be maybe more coaching and sharing with others to benefit, whether it's their career or just overall, whether it's not in your direct company, maybe other companies, but I think that's huge is helping to give back and, and sharing your knowledge with them. And I can think about many, and sorry, I'm going to hop here just a little, but I can think about many points in my career. I said I went from programming to being a project manager. I can remember the separation anxiety from not having coding anymore and I'm just dealing with spreadsheets. And I remember developers telling me how long it would take to do something. And I'm like, what? You know, I figured I could get it done in, in a week and they're telling me months. And it's kind of the same thing when you get into these other leadership positions. You're thinking you can get something done quickly or one way, and they're thinking a different way. But my point is, is that 
with each of those where I'm having those separation anxieties from my old roles, I always find new ways to satisfy, I'll call it my creative need. And one of the ways that I kind of solve that now is through my employees. I try to spur good dialogue with them, especially in one-on-ones, to make sure that they're thinking about themselves, their careers, where they want to go. And I enjoy that. When we get in this role, I think it's it's important that we hopefully do enjoy that so that we're leaving a better industry behind us than what we saw, what we came to. I think that is incredibly well stated. I think there's many people who haven't had the opportunity to experience that themselves for a variety of reasons. That said, there's many great leaders out there. I think that often this sort of servant leadership, and the the term's a little or a lot overused, but the meaning behind it is extremely important, probably isn't talked about enough in the security circles. It's starting to to become more common. But your point of becoming interested in others, especially those with which you work and are responsible for, and even others that maybe are outside your direct sphere of control is super important. And I think that, you know, you said, you know, changing what motivates you, that's an important key to think about as a, as a human, as a person. What motivated me when I was 25 years old in my career is very different as I approach 45. And some of the best fulfillment I've had is sharing teachable moments, my own failures primarily, that I made back when I was, you know, younger. That's really been a great thing. I think if you can separate yourself from the tactical and focus on the individual, I think that that is, and then teaching how to do that, not just doing that, but teaching how to do that when those folks move up, and hopefully they do, that you have coached. So they become the manager, the director, whatever, and they begin to wonder, well, you know, how would Brian do this? How would he have this one-on-one or how would he coach through this moment? So very much a related, much different platform, but it's one of the reasons why we do this show. A flavor of virtual mentorship, the vehicle being the podcast, but listening to the careers of established leaders and knowing every road isn't perfect and sort of sharing that in the perspective. So it's supremely important. As you mentioned, sharing on your failures, what went through my mind is maybe part of the reason that we enjoy it is at work, we feel like they listen to us. At home, when I try to do that with my kids, I don't think they listen. <laughs> That'll come in time, though. We've covered a lot already. You mentioned something that I thought was sort of funny. I spent my whole career on the other side, banking, lending, financial services, and healthcare. And then now, obviously, at Exabeam, and we're a platform vendor, and that's we don't use the show to talk about our product, but you mentioned a great CISO or security leader has to be a great salesperson. And it's definitely a different lens when you go to the vendor side of more so for me, just having to articulate sometimes a complex subject to those that are not familiar with it. 
which is a continuation of something that you would do when you're in a, you know, an ELT meeting or a subcommittee meeting or like whatever that might be explaining, you know, the status of things. How have you worked on becoming a better salesperson in your career? Was there anything you stopped and had to consider a skill or a method that helped you in that sort of influential describing complex stuff person that you are today? Yeah, probably the most important thing that I had found is when you're an engineer, you want every detail so you can kind of absorb it and come to your own decision. But as you start to move up, and especially in my role, when I'm talking to executive leadership or the board who they don't live this world, you know, they read the news and they don't like it. They don't like what they read, but they don't understand the technical things underneath. So what I have found is it's important to keep things at a high level, to talk at them at a high level. And advice I've given many people is imagine that you're trying to describe this to your parents. And are they understanding what you're talking about? And this is assuming your parents aren't, you know, super technical. They're, they've chosen a different career path in life. So you're trying to explain it to them. Do they get what you're talking about? So that includes, you know, limiting the key points to the things that are most important to get in front of them and explain and really trying to avoid the technical jargon. Because as soon as I do, I'm starting to lose them. You know, once I lose them at the beginning, they kind of I've lost them throughout the whole thing. So those have been key and they're not easy. I mean, you go and you look at whatever it is, some risk, some technical challenge, some project you want to go implement. And to get that down to the important points, the points that are going to make the sale, so to speak, sometimes that can be hard. And I've seen many times I'm sitting there and I look at it and I'm editing and I'm editing and I'm like, man, I feel like I pulled out important things. But then when I get to the end of it, which the end for me usually is three or four bullet points, I realized I finally got this down to, you know, the most pertinent information that I need to get across to make my point. And most of the time, it kind of needs to be an elevator pitch because, you know, whether it's going in front of the board or getting executive leadership time, you don't get much time, right? It's five, 10 minutes, and then they need to move on to their next, next business challenge. So it has to be short, concise, and to the point. You said something there that I think is very important. You don't get much time out of a half day meeting. You might get that five, six, seven minutes. And those that believe they're going to get an hour are mistaken typically. And so being a great simplifier is important more than probably anything. So even when you do your writing, that's one skill I had to work on and worked on with many others on our collective journey is even when you're writing a memo or a note to go out is Every sentence in there essential. Can you remove a word? Can you remove a paragraph? You know, I always said people, we'd have their attention kind of like they've been, they do in bull writing. You have about eight seconds. Now, sometimes a memo needs to be longer than eight seconds, but that's really about what you got from the subject on down. In executive communication, the other challenge for those that have listened Back when I was a technician, I would often speak in jargon and I would speak quickly. 
those are two things that you'll have a, a quick death in an executive meeting. If you're speaking quickly and kind of wildly with jargon, you're out, you're done. So even thinking about what's the, the tone and tenor and, and cadence of the communication for me was really important as well. That's one of my other sort of struggles. And then adopting things in my writing, even using, I use Grammarly just to check uh, and look for redundancies and readability. And it's something that I'm sure, as you described using Grammarly, but I constantly have to go and do that. And when I do, I think typical emails I'd write end up being probably a quarter the size. Interesting. So, okay, let's go to that. So you sit down and you want to, and this is today, this isn't 10 years ago, this is right now. So you go to write an email about, hey, there's this initiative and we really need your cooperation and it's going to begin in three weeks and you'll see a note from this other person and you're kicking off an initiative, whatever it is, I'm making all this up, but it's going to be four paragraphs. You're saying that you end up pondering that and end up removing three of the four. Yes. I think most people <laughs> anymore, if it's over a paragraph, I've lost them. What's that from TLDR? Too long, didn't read? You know, that I find is probably the response more often than not if I don't go and edit that down to get it to the pertinent points that need to be made. And that, that's something I, I work with my team on as well. Probably the hundreds of emails that I have rewritten myself, but also helped others rewrite. And those that are listening know what I'm talking about. And some of those people listening, I even probably helped them with some of their notes. Not that I'm of a source of knowledge, but we would work on a, had a common mission and we're trying to simplify and even tone. Instead of saying things like earlier in our careers, we might say something, well, we might want to, or we probably should. And every now and then, we should have a little more, if we've, if we've earned it, a lot more confidence in our message. This project will be complete by next Friday. By that day, we will be doing this, right? This is, we, we will, not we should, not maybe, right? To your point, I, I 100% agree with that. It needs to show that you are taking action, that you're confident in your action, and when you're going to get it done. Those are important messages to get across in each one of the, the notes that you send. I could spend all day on related topics, mainly because I struggled with it so much, I think, earlier in my career. But I want to shift into some of the other areas that make you incredibly unique. And I'm going to lead off with, in our earlier conversation, you said, you know, we're the razor and razor blade company. And that was sort of an introductory comment about what really got into the authentication of hardware. And I don't have a ton of direct experience in that. I'm familiar with what it is and not ignorant to it completely. But talk to us a little bit about how that affects, and you were referencing refillers in particular, but so there's a business problem and you're working to solve this. I think this is fascinating. Could you spend some time on this and, and kind of walk us through that time of your career and what are sort of the the general sort of technical lessons that would be good for a CISO to learn from that? So this is this is fairly early in my career. One of the challenges the business was having was 
So Lexmark, as you mentioned, right, is a razor, razor blade business. The printers end up selling for a loss. The printer industry makes their money selling the supplies, the toners, the inks, et cetera. And that's the way it's been for 30 years now. So one of the challenges that all the printer industry was seeing was aftermarket toner uh, coming from refillers. They would take an empty cartridge and they would refill it with toner and and off you would go. And, you know, for the consumer, it seems great because you're getting it for a much cheaper price. Or for the manufacturer, that's how you go out of business because you're not making a profit at all on the hardware you sold. So we saw that as a as a real business challenge as to how do you try to increase the loyalty of your customers to use your toner? We looked at it first with methods of authenticating cartridges to the printer. And as they were working on that, then the next concern came up. If I were an attacker, what would I do? What's the first thing I'd go after? And and you start thinking through that. And as you think through those things, you start to realize, oh, there's there's holes, you know, in firmware, there's holes in hardware, there's holes in these various places that we need to go and think through a threat model. Effective. Back then I didn't realize, hey, I'm doing a threat model, but that's what we were doing. You know, do a threat model on the system overall and figure out how to fix that. Well, what I didn't realize at the time was that was my introduction to security. The business having the risk presented to them and the challenge pushed down, in this case, to the engineering team to go look at and figure out how they could solve, changed my mindset, right, of how to not just think about the widget that we're going to go create, but think about what vulnerability or risk you're introducing into the environment. And that went on for several years of participating in what I call just overall hardening of the firmware and the hardware and the system to one day, you know, this is several years after I'd gotten into first line management. I remember my boss coming up to me and saying, hey, we'd like you to think about taking over managing the network and the security team. And you know, at the time, I'm like, I don't know. I, I don't want to do that. I'm going to stay here. And he said, well, think about it. And then he comes back about a week later and says, hey, I, we really think you should go do this. And I said, all right, fine, fine, I'll go do it. But me going and doing that pretty much set me on a career track to where I am today. You know, I went into the network and security team. We built out a really awesome team there to both develop capabilities features on the product to better integrate the printers with the IT environment, whether it's joining the printer to Active Directory or dealing with 802.1x or what you know, whatever it was, to hardening of the system and figuring out how to better harden the system and then getting into the whole security development lifecycle. And this is true even today, that if you think a single security team is going to secure your entire system, you're joking right? It's not going to happen. It's a group effort, right? You have to set the culture that it's everyone's responsibility. And so through a security development life cycle that we created, we created a whole training curriculum around it. We were working on teaching every developer in the languages and the frameworks that they were operating in, what the risks were and how to deal with those risks from a coding perspective. And by building that out, I can remember many developers complaining about it, but after they got through it, they go, huh, I didn't think about that. I didn't realize that. 
And so now we had, you know, a broad development community who at least started thinking that way and they were doing it during their daily job. And then they would bring the security team, the firmware development security team in when they had questions about how best to deal with it. And it just, you know, it just kind of grew from there to more opportunities coming up to get engaged with the broader business areas that just for me raised my visibility to the broader business. And it also raised the security awareness to the broader business because at the same time I was doing all of this, our customers were raising their security IQ, right? They were starting to ask us questions. What are you doing to ensure that malware doesn't get into your printer? What are you doing to make sure that your IT systems are secure? You know, they they were asking a lot more questions and that really raised the awareness overall to the point where we finally realized that, hey, we actually need to designate a security officer type role in order to be aware of what's being required and make sure that we're driving our maturity forward, which is the position that I ultimately ended up going into. It's an extremely large responsibility. It's interesting that it kind of organically just happened, that it naturally happened based on some business challenges, but also business needs. It wasn't my synthesis of this, and I may not be completely correct, but it's rather than security for security's sake, it's security because it was sort of became a a necessary ingredient. Obviously, nothing is perfect, but I find that interesting, unique, and sort of fun to hear. And then all of this being probably more impactful. Again, we've not known each other long. We've had a couple of good conversations now, but having that foundational knowledge of how things are made and having a variety of jobs really seems like it helped. And even getting into third-party risk, which you talked to me about, kind of getting cooperation and having good outcomes for the business, you know, pulling in supply chain, IT, and others, you seem to have a, a great amount of pride around that, which is more recent. Can you talk a little bit about some of those I guess, challenges or how is that different than what you sort of described with our prior topic is this is supply chain gets much bigger uh, and obviously you have suppliers. How was that challenge? And was that a new set of skills you had to come up with or, or more of the same that you've already developed? Very much a new set of skills. I find that that part of uh, your skill is almost more of a, an auditor and thinking like an auditor. You know, the third-party risk management really came out of, it really started as an offshoot of, of us working on GDPR compliance. You know, as GDPR came in as a business requirement, because we heavily operate in Europe, you realize that, one, from a contractual perspective, you had to make sure you were passing through any of the regulatory requirements, and that you needed to make sure that whoever is is a data processor for you was acting on the data in the same way that you both were regulated to act on it and as your policy said, you were acting on it. So we started to develop our third-party risk management program for that purpose. But to make it successful, we had to partner with our procurement team and the legal team. And this is a challenge. I would say I was fortunate in this aspect that because of other dynamics in the business, 
there were similar efforts to start consolidating operations kind of worldwide. So as an example, procurement was consolidating into a single procurement organization instead of having multiple regional organizations. Legal was doing something very similar. And I was able to take advantage of those initiatives to get in there and one, get alignment with them on the need, and then two, set a process that I knew was repeatable and would succeed in terms of you know, assessing a vendor, assessing the risk for the vendor, and then getting that risk assessment in front of the right area of the business before we went and signed a contract, which before that all occurred, I would find out about a contract, you know, months afterwards. And usually I'd find out because they would come to IT and say, hey, we bought this and we need to get it implemented. And I go, whoa, you know, what is that? Yeah. Hey, plug this in. Right. And when I first started my role, that's what I got. I mean, I, it was hey, I need to plug this in and I need to plug that in. And then, of course, we would go look at it and tell them no. And then the fight would ensue. So getting in front of that with the procurement team was huge. And yes, we still have our battles with a given vendor. But to me, the important thing is that the risk is understood, it's communicated. And then if the business says, no, I still want to take on that risk, okay, we'll take on the risk, but then I'll go work on the mitigations before it shows up on the network. Switching gears here a little bit, one of my favorite questions to ask is, what advice would you give your younger self? And, you know, we had a nice chat that, you know, years ago when we got started working and before that loyalty to a company was big, it was sort of paramount. But now people are wanting more diversity in many ways in sort of the the variety of career experiences, which you talked about. I mean, you've had multiple careers still with one company, but it's been like multiple careers within. So sort of achieving the same result. And you suggested giving people the opportunity to move around, to look for ways to move around. But the point, and I think this is supremely important for the listener and for those who maybe are not yet in leadership, you told me to look at what the CISO is going to be in the future. And how does the business work around that person, that role? Unpack that. So look at what the CISO is going to be. So what's the CISO going to be? What's your view, your opinion? What is it going to be? And what recommendations do you have for the newer listener related to that? Yeah, so when we think about the CISO today, and this isn't, you know, holistic, but a lot of them. They have probably grown up more in the IT organization and potentially even in the security organizations and worked their way up into that CISO role. So they're very deeply technical and knowledgeable in that security space. What I see coming is that first security overall will mature, right? And and we kind of see that now with like cyber insurance as an example, right? It's a very immature space. But it has been rapidly maturing, right? As the ransomware events that have gone on, et cetera, they're starting to figure out what the risk is to an organization is, uh, given given their current posture, to know what the premium should be for a given policy. And much like that, I see the CISO role maturing as well to one where the business is going to look for people who understand how a business operates. 
but they also are going to understand what risk means and how to do risk trade-offs. And I think that as we look forward, whether it's the CIO, the chief legal officer, or the CEO, or the CFO, right, any of those, they're going to want somebody who can speak with a good business sense, who truly understands how to talk about a business investment, and can make good risk trade-offs. So my personal belief is they're going to look for someone who has that diverse set of experiences within the business. They know how to talk to a customer. They know how, you know, in my case, the supply chain operates. They know how the sales team works. They know how development works. And they will be able to make the right trade-offs to keep the business moving and hopefully make it a differentiator for that organization. Yeah, I love hearing that. Of That's one of the things we talk about on the show, or at least I, I mention, is you have to be able to articulate, and your staff more importantly, how does your program differentiate itself from your industry peers in plain language? And so I, I love hearing that. Yeah, I think that is super important because in today's world, whether you're in finance, whether you're in, in you know, in my case, we're effectively IT and IT services. If I cannot show that I can deliver you, Mr. Customer, a authentic product that's free of malware and services that aren't creating a backdoor into your environment, it quickly becomes, you know, no, I'm not buying from you. And I never want to be the reason someone doesn't buy from me. Yeah, that's, in fact, the inversion of that would be great. Yes, exactly. So, Brian, we're almost out of time here, but one final question for you. Pursuant to the name of the show, the new CISO, what does being a new CISO mean to you? Well, there's a few things for me. And probably the biggest lesson I learned very early in my role is your words mean things. You know, when you say something, just make sure that it is aligned with what your strategy is, because you can quickly get teams ramped up on things that you didn't mean them to get ramped up on that may not be the priorities. So that's one. The other is you have to bring the business along with you. And when I say the business, I'm not talking only about the business leaders, but the users. If you don't bring them along with you, you're going to fail because as you put controls in, if the users and the business aren't aligned with you, they will work around you. So I think that's another important one. And then lastly, for me, when building out that team, look for diversity. You want people on that team who are different than you. You want them to understand other areas of the business where you may be weak or have skills where you're weak in to help make the team overall whole and actually more than whole, performing at an excellent level. So those are a few thoughts, right, of things. And I'm sure if you gave me another hour, I'd just keep rattling more off. Well, that isn't necessary, but we would gladly listen. Brian, thank you so much. This has been absolutely excellent. I appreciate the time that you've given us today. Well, I had a great time on here. I appreciate it. Thank you much. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast 
And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.